Well, good morning, y'all. And uh, thank you to Josh and Sarah and Rich and Elijah for leading us to God's throne through music this morning. If you have your Bibles, open to Mark chapter 8. And we're going to begin this morning a little bit with where we ended last Sunday morning. The question that was posed in front of us at the end of last Sunday was, do you not yet understand? Jesus was speaking to his disciples, wrestling with the fact that they were still wrestling with the fact that they didn't understand. At the beginning of what we're going to get into this morning, Jesus is going to do yet another miracle. Another miraculous healing to go on top of all the other ones that led up to that. Prior to what we see happening in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, Jesus has healed numerous people. There was the man who was deaf and mute. There was the woman with the flow of blood that wasn't healing over years. There's a man that had a withered hand. There was a paralyzed man that was lowered down to Jesus through a rooftop. Jesus reached out and he touched and healed a leper. There were many other diseases where just, there's so many, they're not even specifically listed for us. And Jesus went so far as to even bring back to life a dead little girl. So all of that has happened prior to Jesus asking yet again, do you not yet understand? They don't. And before we get too upset with the disciples, like, don't you guys get it? Recognize the disciples are us. How many times has God brought truth to us? Done incredible things. Maybe we've not seen miracles on this level, but God's done incredible things. And yet we're still going, I wonder if God's really interested in the affairs of my life. Is God even remotely paying attention to what's happening here? Do you not yet understand? What we're going to get into this morning is a continuation of where we left off. Because Jesus is going to reveal that, no, you don't yet understand, but I'm going to open your eyes to it. And he starts with an incredible object lesson in Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees, walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. 
we can make some obvious assumptions about this man's condition. This is somebody who had not been blind since birth, but that at some point later on in life became blind. How do we know that? Well, because he knew what trees looked like. At some point during his life, his vision was completely gone. So much so that a group of people had to lead him to Jesus, and then we see this tender moment from Jesus in verse 23. He took the blind man by the hand and led him. This is an unusual miracle that's recorded for us in the Gospels. Because it's the only one of Jesus' miracles where the healing did not happen instantly. Notice it took two tries for Jesus to heal the man's eyes. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what happened there? Did Jesus somehow lose some of his miraculous healing powers? If that's true, then there's no reason for us to be here this morning. It's not that Jesus somehow lost his powers, but he was doing something to reveal once again to his disciples and to ask them once again, do you not yet understand? And the use of the word yet becomes critically important. And we talked about this last week as well. That in the previous accounts where Jesus uses the words still, when he's talking about their hearts, are your hearts still hardened? Do you not yet understand Jesus is holding out a degree of hope to say that change can happen? So Jesus is healing this man, and he's doing it in stages. And it's an object lesson. It's an object lesson for both where the disciples are at in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he's really come to do, but it's also an object lesson for what he is going to say following this event. Because this healing, this healing of physical eyes is a foreshadowing of a healing to come of spiritual eyes. So Jesus uses this man in a really unique way to bring about truth to his disciples. And even the manner of what Jesus does here is fascinating. Why did he lead him away from the people? Well, we've seen before in Mark that when Jesus heals people, it ends up creating a kerfuffle of sorts and people want to destroy him. So they're like, hey, how about you and I just take a walk? And then he does something bizarre and that he spits on his eyes. Now, some of us want to read that as modern hygienic individuals and say, well, probably what he did was he spit on his hands and then he rubbed. No, the text clearly states he spit on the man's eyes. We're violently offended by that. That's a great way to get yourself punched if you just directly spit into another individual's eyes. It is one of the highest forms of insult is for you to spit into a man's face or into a woman's face. Although I don't really see that happening so much between women spitting. I'm, I'm not really in like the women culture. I don't know if you guys spit on each other. Anyways. When I was in the sixth grade, I was on a, uh, a peewee football team, and there was uh, an individual. We were at an after-season party. And this man, I'll just say his first name because we live in the world of Facebook. If I tell you his full name, you'll go search for him and say, Hey, do you remember this? <laughs> his name was Matt. And Matt was a bit lippy. And 
I'm not, I'm not a fighter. I'm a lover. But this time it was too much. And I did what I should not have done. And I spit directly into Matt's face. And within an instant, the speed with which it happened was fascinating. I took a right cross to my jaw that put me on the ground. Why did this man not take a swing at Jesus? He spit in his face. Well, two things. Number one, he's desperate. He will accept any treatment if there's a possibility that it might be healed. But secondly, culturally speaking, it was presumed that individuals who were thought to have, quote-unquote, magical powers, that there was something special about their saliva. And so it's fitting with the cultural norm, like, okay, hey, this guy seems pretty special. Maybe I'll allow him to spit in my face, and maybe something good will happen with it. But then Jesus heals him in stages. That first stage His eyes are open just a little bit. He's able to make out shapes. He's able to distinguish between sizes, but the vision isn't totally clear. And that's exactly where the disciples are at. They've seen all these miracles. They've witnessed two miraculous feedings. They're still showing up in a boat without bread, even though they know all this stuff. They just don't get it. And so Jesus reveals that when he goes back and he touches his eyes again. And opens them. Now I say this to you as an encouragement for those of you who have friends and family and neighbors and classmates who are not yet followers of Jesus. And you're wondering, is it ever going to happen? Sometimes it happens in stages. And those of you who are followers of Christ, even though I don't know everybody's story with precision, I'm willing to guess, educated, That most of us, our story of coming to faith in Christ did not happen overnight, but that there were stages of that, stages of understanding, stages of belief that eventually led us to a place where God opened our spiritual eyes to see it with crystal clear vision. So keep that object lesson in mind as we go through the rest of what happens in Mark chapter 8. Starting in verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, that's an interesting question given the area that they're in. The region that they're in, there was a proliferation of false gods. And so Jesus, to ask that question, is like, hey, we're in this territory filled with other lowercase g gods. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked him, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Peter makes this glorious confession that seems to indicate that he gets it. Jesus, or excuse me, Peter is acting in a way as a spokesman for the rest of the disciples. It's finally becoming clear to them, you 
are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. You are the one that's been promised to us. You are him. The question that Jesus poses, who do you say that I am? Whatever question you face in your life, nothing, 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 nothing comes anywhere close to the power and the importance of that question. If you get this question wrong, it changes everything for eternity. If you get this question correct and submit to it, it changes everything for eternity. Who do you say that I am? It would be interesting to see how individuals would answer that question in 2022. Who do you say that I am? I suspect we would get similar answers as to what Jesus received when he asked the disciples. Now, they're not responding for themselves. They're saying, well, what we're hearing other people say is, I think we would hear a lot in 2022. Oh, Jesus was a good teacher. He could have been a prophet, probably a really good one. He was a miracle worker. He was a really good guy. Peter's confession, though, that's the answer we're looking for. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Jesus asking this question directly of his disciples, it's carrying the weight of these questions. Do you realize yet who I am? Or another way of putting it, are you aware of the truth? And I probably should have capitalized the T in truth there. Because Jesus says himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, truth isn't just some nebulous concept out there, but truth, capital T truth, is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So finally, the disciples get it. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that's been promised. You are the one that we've been waiting for. Matthew's gospel gives us a little more detail about this interaction between Jesus and his disciples when he asks this question. Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Can I encourage you, when you're thinking about your friends, family, neighbors, classmates, coworkers, who don't yet get it, number one, be gentle. You didn't get it at first either. Number two, recognize it is not your job to convince them. God the Father has retained that responsibility for himself. At the end of our time here on earth, we will not be judged for how many people we convinced to believe the gospel. 
That is the territory, the realm of God himself. He will do the convincing. Our responsibility is, will we be, will we be faithful? And Jesus made it clear to Peter, hey, the reason why you know this is because my father showed you. And so we can celebrate that Peter and the rest of the disciples finally at last, praise God, hallelujah, they get it. But that's only the first stage. They can now see the people walking around like trees. But they can't quite tell that they're people. They can't see the full definition, the contours of the face, how their hands might be tightened up or just limp. Can't see the texture of their clothing just yet. The disciples get that Jesus is the Christ, but their vision isn't completely clear yet. Keyword yet. Mark 8. Sorry, in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That's Mark's editorial comment to say, Jesus isn't talking in a parable here any longer. This isn't some kind of object lesson that he's giving. No, he is using very clear and explicit words, speaking plainly to his disciples that he must suffer, be rejected, and be killed. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, follow what has happened here. Peter has started out in this passage confessing that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the long-expected one. And right on the heels of saying that Jesus is the Christ, he decides, I'm going to rebuke Jesus for his teaching. We see the word rebuke there, and we tend to modernize it a little bit. This is not just a student saying to his teacher, hey, you know, I, I don't know that I fully buy into what you just said. Could you explain that a little bit further? I kind of have some disagreements. This is not what that word means. This isn't even a question from Peter. This is Peter straight up, Peter straight up looking at Jesus and essentially saying, how dare you? This version of the word rebuke as we see it expressed routinely in the New Testament, is a word for condemning demons to hell. That's the weight and the force of what Peter has done to Jesus. Now, how Peter's able to do this in his mind is phenomenal. You are the Christ! How dare you say something like that? Why is Peter... Rebuking Jesus. After what Peter and the rest of the disciples have seen. After walking with Jesus for as long as they have walked. After hearing Jesus teach over and over and over again. Why is Peter rebuking Jesus? Why is he equating what Jesus said 
with coming straight from the pits of hell. That is a strong charge to bring against the one that you just declared to be the Messiah. What has gotten Peter so addled, so wrapped around the axle that he would stand up and have the gall to stare Jesus in the face and rebuke him? This is what bothered Peter. That Jesus said that ultimately he must suffer be rejected, and be killed. The perceived vision of the Messiah to come was one who was going to help the Jews throw off Roman imperialism. Their picture was not of one who was going to suffer and be rejected and be killed. It didn't fit their vision for who Jesus was going to be. It didn't fit the narrative of what was going to happen, which there is a bit of irony in that. And that they, Peter specifically, but probably the rest of the disciples along with them, declare that Jesus is the Messiah. They know what the Old Testament texts say about Messiah. Hello, Isaiah 53 is right there in our Bibles as well as theirs. Well, they didn't really have Bibles, which go with me which pictures a suffering servant. So Jesus has a response. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, that word rebuke. That's reserved for a condemnation of demons to hell. That's what Jesus says to Peter. Why did Jesus call Peter Satan? We'll just leave that for a Monday night. Um, To grasp that, we have to go back to the temptation of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry. And he's out in the wilderness, and there's an encounter where, G where Satan shows up to tempt Jesus. And at one point, Satan says to Jesus, like, hey, look, nobody's around. Just bow down to me, and I'll give you everything. I'll give you all these kingdoms. It's yours. All you got to do is just bow the knee in front of me. Nobody's going to see it. Just do it. Jesus, wisely, thankfully, does not submit to that temptation. And he rebukes Satan, sends him on his way. And the way that the text captures it for us is that Satan left for a time. It's kind of like this foreboding idea. Like we know that Satan's in there somewhere. He's going to pop up at the last possible moment, the most unexpected season of time. And here it is. Just after Peter declares openly that Jesus is the Messiah, Satan strolls back up. 
Is he saying that Peter is Satan? No, he's not saying that. But he can tell that Peter's thoughts are being animated by satanic influence. And Jesus sees it for exactly what it is and rebukes it. So, Peter, probably the rest of the disciples, they're still revealing that their vision is blurry. They're seeing something. It's starting to come into focus for them. They're not seeing the full weight of that. And again, just to remind you, this vision, version of the word rebuke, is the one reserved for condemning demons to hell. Peter used it on Jesus, and then Jesus flipped it back up against him. And in doing so, Jesus draws a very clear boundary that there is two ways to navigate through this world. There's two ways to view the things of the world. It is either God's way or it's man's way. He says in Mark 8.33, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is not an ancient problem. It is not merely a New Testament predicament. This is an ongoing struggle for every single one of us. And it should give us pause and start to ask some questions of ourselves. Am I thinking God's way or am I thinking man's way? Here are some questions to help you diagnose that. Where is my heart? What are my priorities? What am I preoccupied with? What are my goals in life? Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus teaches us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Does that mean that you can't ever have any other kinds of goals? No, obviously it doesn't mean that. But what is the driving force behind why you get up in the morning? Hopefully you get up in the morning. God's wired you up, designed you to be diligent and productive. God's also designed you that when you're done with a productive, diligent day to rest. Go to bed, people. Come on. But what drives you day in and day out? Is it the drive to know Christ and to make him known? Is it to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? Is it to honor God with every part of you? Is it to be preoccupied with the things that are on God's mind and heart? Or are you content to look at it man's way? What's convenient for me? How can I strategize my way into this or out of this? How can I set myself up for future success? You can keep going down that list. Jesus make it clear there are only two paths that can and should be taken. Taken? Taken. Sorry, sometimes my southern vocabulary kicks in and we just make up words. Words. 
Where is your heart? What drives and motivates your heart? Jesus is going to help his disciples answer those questions with what happens next. As their eyes are slowly being opened more and more, he's going to help them to answer those questions with what happens next, starting verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's just pause there. At this point, Peter's really feeling the burn. Because Peter has reacted to the idea that, he, that Jesus was going to suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Jesus has just mentioned the cross. Look, just as a reminder, the cross as a form of execution was already in place before Jesus went to the cross. It was a known thing. And so for Jesus to already include the language of the cross, he's reminding his disciples once again, oh, by the way, not only am I going to die, but here's how I'm going to be killed. If anyone would come after me, let him deny my, himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That is God's way. Jesus defined for us. What is God's way? Lose your life. Yesterday, we were at a wedding. One of my closest friends, his oldest daughter, was getting married. Got married. It's official. They, they did it. Nobody walked away from it. It was cool. And my, uh, my friend was responsible for performing a portion of his daughter's ceremony. And he looked at his mere minutes away from being son-in-law. And said to him from Ephesians 5 that his responsibility was to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now, I love my, my friend deeply. I just wish he had included one more sentence because it's a sentence that I include in weddings when talking to the husband. You have to die. What does it mean that we love our spouse the way that Christ loved the church? Well, what did Jesus do for his church? He died for it. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. My friend looked at his son-in-law and his daughter and said, your marriage needs to be marked by a sacrificial love. That truth applies to us, even though we're not married to each other. We're called to die, to kill your agenda, to kill your pride, to kill your self-will, to kill your arrogance. All of it has to die. And that is an affront in our cultural moment 
that encourages us to build ourselves up, to craft a platform, to advocate for ourselves. And maybe there's some element of truth in certain applied situations, but as a driving force for how you live your life, no, you die. You're a servant. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's sum that up. Recognize the value of your soul. Make it a practice to feed your soul. If you are thinking in terms of man's way and, in, and not God's way, man's way will not feed your soul. It'll feed your ego. It'll feed your pride. But it will not feed your soul. God's way will feed your soul. Recognize the value of your soul and protect it. And we grasp the value of our souls when we understand what Jesus was willing to pay for our souls. When you understand that, that Jesus was willing to go to the cross and to suffer a humiliating, excruciating death, Literally excruciating. That's where we get the word from. It's because of the crucifixion. From the cross. Out of the cross. An excruciating death. Why? To rescue our souls. Ask yourself if you would ever willingly do something that would be destructive to your souls. Eyes need to be opened to this truth. So this morning... We get to celebrate that Jesus was willing to pay for our souls. We're going to share communion together. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate and to celebrate with us. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, if you haven't yet trusted in Christ for your salvation, we would ask you to let the elements just slide by this morning. And instead, spend this time really grappling with who Jesus said he is and what it is that he has done for your soul. And would you prayerfully consider submitting yourself to the lordship and the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. For the truth and the power of your word that reminds us that our souls are valuable, so much so that you sent your son to pay for them, to redeem them. Lord, I pray for eyes to be opened to those who are hearing this. Father, in those things that are blurry, that we can't see clearly, where our vision is obscured, we pray that you would do the work to open our eyes. And perhaps you need to open our eyes 
to the fact that we've been doing things our way and not your way. We've trusted in our imaginations. We've trusted in our skills. We've trusted in our intellect. But we've not yet trusted you. Father, would you examine our hearts? Would you help us to see what it is that drives us, that motivates us? Help us to grasp with what we prioritize. And if it's not your way, I pray you would give us the courage to rebuke it and to send it back to where it came from. I pray we would yield ourselves to you fully. And we thank you that because what your son did on the cross on our behalf in our place, that's a reality that we can embrace. We thank you for your son's perfect, once for all, complete, for all time sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. And so now it's our joy to come to this table this morning, to remind ourselves again, to rehearse the gospel again, that Jesus Christ died for sinners. And he rose again and he lives forever. And there's coming a day where we'll, we will be joined with him for eternity. Thank you for the work of your son. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life made possible through your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.